I'm Dr. Sterling. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and mom. Welcome to the Becoming Moms podcast, where I give you the step-by-step to optimizing your physical and emotional wellness in pregnancy so you can create a nourishing environment for your baby, your family, and yourself. The information shared in this podcast is intended for general education purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard in this podcast. All right, lovelies, let's dive in to this week's episode. So this isn't a fun topic for a podcast episode, but it is very, very needed. Today, I'm going to be giving answers to the top six questions I get from members of sterlingparents.com about early pregnancy loss. So the first question we're going to dive into is, what are the different types of miscarriage or early pregnancy loss? So let's start off with some definitions. Early pregnancy loss is a loss that occurs before 12 weeks and six days. And it includes pregnancies that are inside the uterus. So ectopic pregnancies are not included in um, the definition of early pregnancy loss. Definitely something that we need to talk about at some point in a future podcast, but we're not going to be talking about ectopic pregnancy right now. We're also not going to be talking about molar pregnancies. If you don't know what a molar pregnancy is, don't worry about it. They're not very common, and we're not going to touch on them in this episode, but again, something that we will talk about at some point here on the podcast. So what we're really talking about is non-viable pregnancies that are inside the uterus that don't make it beyond 12 weeks and six days. So there's a variety of different types of miscarriage or pregnancy loss that fall under this umbrella. First and foremost is a chemical pregnancy or a biochemical pregnancy. This is essentially a very, very early pregnancy loss. So you have a positive pregnancy test. um, And then a few days later, you get your period and your pregnancy test is then negative. So you never got to the doctor's office, got an ultrasound, nothing happened Um, to document the pregnancy other than that positive pregnancy test. So those are biochemical pregnancies, which which are essentially just very, very early miscarriages. Then there are pregnancies that are called anembryonic. An is a... um, is a prefix that means um, absence or lack of. So um, an embryonic means a lack of an embryo. So basically you you go into your um, OB provider's office, they do an ultrasound, they may um, see a gestational sac, but they never actually see a fetal pole develop. So this is a Um, a pregnancy that started developing but then stopped before the embryo was big enough to be visualized on ultrasound. Then there are um, pregnancies that advance to the stage that there is an embryo um, or a fetal pole that we can see on ultrasound, and they either never developed uh, a heartbeat or they had a heartbeat and they lost it. And so we tend to divide out these early pregnancy losses into different categories depending on 
really the the symptoms that the person is experiencing. So we will call a a person who has a fetal pole with no heartbeat but hasn't had any symptoms at all, we'll call that a missed miscarriage. And what that essentially means is is that the body has not yet really recognize that this pregnancy is not viable. And so the person hasn't had any bleeding or cramping or anything else to signify that this pregnancy is non-viable. So unfortunately, um, this oftentimes is a a big surprise um, to the pregnant person when they come into the office and find out that there's, there's no fetal heartbeat, whether there was one before or they haven't yet seen a fetal heartbeat. Then there are incomplete Uh, miscarriages. And this is when you've started to have some symptoms, some cramping and bleeding, but you haven't actually passed all of the pregnancy tissue, especially the gestational sac. That's the, the most important thing for your body to eventually, um, get rid of so that you can, you know, try to conceive again if you want to, um, and to reduce your risk of infection because we don't want that tissue just staying around forever. Now, the third type of miscarriage is what we call a spontaneous miscarriage. Some people call it a spontaneous abortion. And essentially, it's just a miscarriage that happens and without any medical intervention whatsoever, it completes on its own. And so you don't have to... um, take any medication or have a procedure, your body recognizes this is a non-viable pregnancy or there's something not quite right with this pregnancy and um, you start having cramping and bleeding and all of the tissue is gone. Okay, so now that we've covered some of the different types of early pregnancy loss, let's talk about options. So one of the most common questions I get from members of sterlingparents.com is what are my options if I have a missed or an incomplete miscarriage? So uh, oftentimes, you know, when you go to your OB provider and you're told that you're having a miscarriage or that there's no, you know, no fetal pull or no heartbeat, you get this news and then you are immediately presented with some options and it can be a really difficult space to absorb that information and try to make a decision. And sometimes providers don't really give enough information to help people make educated, informed decisions for themselves and what the best option is for them. So we're going to go through the, the different management options available if you have a pregnancy loss and it hasn't, um, your body hasn't taken care of getting rid of the pregnancy on its own and you're going to uh, need some help. So your first option for managing a missed miscarriage or an incomplete miscarriage is what we call expectant management. And that is us not doing anything and just waiting to see if your body starts to begin the miscarriage process on its own. Now, if we give adequate time for this management option, up to eight weeks, approximately 80% of people will have complete expulsion of all the pregnancy tissue without any intervention. However, that's a long time to wait. And for some people, the idea of waiting two months to just let the pregnancy tissue pass on its own is not what they want to do. So if you don't want to wait for 
um, your body to take care of the process itself, there are different ways that we can help you. So medication is an option uh, to help your body begin the process of cramping, bleeding, and expelling the pregnancy tissue. So there are different medications that we use for this. The most commonly used medication is mesoprostol. The brand name in the United States is um, Cytotec. And so this is a medication uh, that you, it's not, it's not actually a medication that was designed for this purpose. Um, so if you read about it online, a lot of times they're going to say, oh, this is an oral medication. You can take it orally. You can also put it in your cheek and let it uh, dissolve. But the most effective way to administer this medication in order to effect a miscarriage is to put it in your vagina. So we typically prescribe uh, about 800 micrograms of vaginal misoprostol. You put that in your vagina, and then that will cause your uterus to have contractions and to hopefully pass the pregnancy tissue. With one dose of vaginal mesoprostol at 800 micrograms, about 70% of people are going to have complete expulsion of the, the pregnancy tissue by day three. So it can take a few days for it to work all the way. We also tend to prescribe a second dose in case you don't really have a lot of bleeding, you don't have a lot of cramping. If we give you a second dose and you give yourself a few days off the on the first dose, you take a break, then administer the second dose, we're, we can bump up that complete expulsion rate from 70% to close to 85%. So we typically prescribe... 800 micrograms of vaginal mesoprostol will give two doses, and then people can go home and, you know, administer these doses at 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 a time that is convenient for them, um, and <clears throat> see what happens. Obviously, in a uh, you know 15 percent of people or so, uh, the expulsion won't be complete, and some of those people will need. Uh, a procedure to help clear out that pregnancy tissue. And that procedure is called a dilation and curatage. Most of the time we are doing suction dilation and curatages now, which means in a, a curette is a sharp instrument that was used in the past for um, many different procedures in the uterus. Now we typically just use suction. So we'll have, it's a plastic tube that goes inside the uterus and then we apply some suction and it, and it pulls out the pregnancy tissue. So a dilation and suction curatage can be performed both in the office. It can also be performed in a hospital. And the success rate of this is much higher than expected management. And it's higher, of course, than the medication because your provider can actually do an ultrasound while they're doing the procedure to make sure that they've gotten adequate tissue. Now, this doesn't mean that there's never a case where you don't get all the pregnancy tissue with suction DNC, but it is much less common than with the other management options. So let's talk a little bit about risks and benefits of these different methods. Now, of course, um, with expectant management, 
Um, one of the one of the risks is that you wait a period of time and nothing happens and you end up needing to do medication or you need to do the procedure anyway. One of the benefits is, is that this is a really hands-off um, management option. So the, the risks are, are pretty low. There is some risk of infection anytime you have tissue that is, um, you know, degrading and no longer viable inside your body, there is a higher risk that that tissue can get infected. And so really within eight weeks or so, as long as this is an early pregnancy loss, we don't see super high rates of um, infection. However, once we get into later in pregnancy, this expectant management is not something that we offer typically because the infection risk is too high. So the infection risk is much lower in early pregnancy. So that's the expectant management option. As for the medications, uh, we tend to see um, a little bit higher blood loss with the medications than the procedure. That's, you know, there's several studies that have demonstrated that it's not really clinically significant, the, the difference in blood loss, okay? But if you were, say, severely anemic and you had, you know, issues with a, a chronic um, anemia, that might be something that we consider. Um, but you can expect a little bit more blood loss with um, the medications that you take at home. Another... Um, Risk of the medications, of course, they don't work and you end up needing the procedure anyway. For some people, ability to have this occur in the home is really comforting. They like the idea that they're going to be able to take this medication, be at home, not have to interact with the hospital, uh, not have to go in for a procedure. So it allows them to take care of it at the, on their timeline. You know, you don't have to schedule an appointment with your provider or with with a hospital operating room. It's really on your own schedule. So people like that. Um, so it's really a personal decision when it comes to the medication. If it sounds like that's something that appeals to you, um, you also avoid the risks of the procedure, which we'll get into in a moment. And I will say that we're going to talk about what to expect with a medication induced miscarriage and being aware of kind of what the experience is like is really important when you make that decision. So when we talk about that, that will help you kind of flush out um, your options. As for the dilation and curatage, the suction dilation and curatage, one of the, the benefits of this procedure is that it's taken care of. We can usually get a procedure like this done within a week or two weeks. So the, there's not a long period to wait. And you go in one day and you go home the same day. It's a same day procedure and it's done. And for a lot of people, that's really desirable to just get it taken care of, not worry about if it's going to work or, or not. Again, the risk of that happening is extremely low. And so there's that benefit. It is a procedure, however, so it has risks such as infection. Anytime you put an in, you know a foreign instrument into somebody's body, that's going to increase their risk of infection. There's a risk of infection, the risk of bleeding, the risk of uh, damage to surrounding organs. So the 
you know, there's a lot of organs in your pelvis. Your cervix can be damaged. That's the opening to your uterus. Your uterus itself can be damaged during the procedure. These are not common complications, but they do occur. Um, sometimes something called a perforation occurs, and that's when one of our tools actually breaks through the uterus. And depending on where the perforation occurs, um, if it occurs, you know, in the middle of the uterus and there, we're not using a, a sharp tool, it can be just this, it can be as simple as, okay, there was a small perforation and we watch and make sure everything's okay. And then you can still go home the same day. It doesn't really change anything. These small perforations are, don't tend to be clinically significant. However, if you have a perforation in, in a more sensitive location of your uterus, sensitive meaning that there's you know, neurovascular bundles there. And so a, you know, bleeding can occur or potentially at a place where you could have damaged another organ that you weren't able to see. And depending on the type of tool you're using, right? So if you're using a tool that has heat in it, or you're using a sharp tool and it pierces through the uterus, then you're worried about, okay, is there something in the abdomen that was also damaged that I can't see? Cause I'm just going from below. I can't see what's going on in the abdomen. And so sometimes when that occurs, we will actually put a camera in through your belly button from above and just look around and make sure that we don't see any damage. But, you know, I've never been in a case where anything was actually damaged that needed to be fixed. But because your bowel, your bladder, you know, nerves, arteries, and veins, all of those organs are right around the uterus. If something is damaged, then that would require additional surgery to fix it or an additional procedure to fix it. So again, perforations, I wouldn't say they're 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 not common, but they're not super rare. They do happen. I have uh, you know, done a procedure that had a perforation and that really good surgeons, uh, perforate the uterus. It's just the nature of how soft that uterus can be. Um, so it's not, you know, if you have a perforation, it doesn't necessarily mean something that's mean that somebody did something wrong. It's just kind of a reality of this procedure. Um, but fortunately I've never been a part of surgery that, you know, somebody had to have additional surgeries because of that perforation, though they do occur. I have heard about them. It's not unheard of. So uh, pain, bleeding, infection, damage to surrounding organs. The other thing to be aware of is that anytime we instrument the uterus, there is a chance that we can cause scar tissue in the uterus. Scar tissue in the uterus can make it difficult to get pregnant in the future, and it can impact the, your ability to um, have regular cycles. So sometimes the scar tissue gets so thick that somebody is not able to actually build up an endometrial lining. Um, that's the lining of the uterus where the, the pregnancy implants, which obviously would could impact their fertility, but also they may not be having a, a regular menstrual cycle after that. Their hormones are all there, but the hormones aren't able to build up that lining of the uterus. That's something called Asherman syndrome. Again, uh, you know, the risk of Asherman syndrome is less than 1%. I've done hundreds and hundreds of these procedures for many different indications. I've only ever had one patient um, experience Asherman syndrome. And we don't, it's not, we don't know who is going to experience that complication. Um, fortunately, it's not very common, but it does happen. It's something that everybody should be aware of. So those are just some of the risks and benefits of the different uh, 
management options for an incomplete or a missed miscarriage. So let's talk about what you can expect from the medications that induce miscarriage, because I really think that understanding the medications, uh, I'm sorry, understanding expectations is a really important part of making this decision. So the medications that we give are the same medications that we use to uh, ripen people's cervix and induce labor. So these are causing contractions of your uterus and it can be quite painful. There is another medication that we sometimes use called the Mifepristone. Um, this medication is also used for pregnancy terminations. And so it's very heavily regulated. So a lot of, unless you apply for a special license, you as a physician aren't going to have Mifepristone in your office and you're not going to be able to administer it. So places like Planned Parenthood will have Mifepristone and they can prescribe it to their patients. But regular OBGYN offices oftentimes don't have this. We typically prescribe Mifepristone to give before you take the mesoprostol. I know it's confusing because they're two M words that sound very similar, but Mifepristone actually helps increase the efficacy of the mesoprostol, which is the also known as cytotech in the United States. Um, it works by blocking progesterone. And so it actually helps the, the, the tissue start to de- basically start to degrade before you administer the vaginal mesoprostol, which is the medication that causes contractions. So if your provider is able to give you that medication, it will increase the likelihood that your medication management will be effective. Um, the only limiting issue is, is being able to prescribe it and having that special license. So assuming that you're just doing the vaginal mesoprostol, if your provider pre- you know, prescribes it to you vag- uh, orally or what we call buckley, which is when you put it in your cheek, you can ask them, is there any reason that I can't take this vaginally? Some providers just think that people don't want to put anything in their vagina. Pregnancy can be really hard. On top of all the physical stuff, there's the emotional impact of not feeling well and not feeling at home in your body for months on end. If you are having a tough time in pregnancy, you are not alone. I have so been there and I want to help you. Head over to the bestpregnancyclass.com to register for my free class, Four Ways to Make Your Pregnancy Easier and Healthier. This class is all about taking some of the stress and overwhelm off your plate. Head over to the bestpregnancyclass.com and pick a time to watch the class from the comfort of your own home. You deserve support, Mama. If you want to take it via another route, but it's going to be most effective when it's, when it's placed in the vagina. So if you're prescribed in in a different way, you can always ask like, Hey, is there any reason why, um, vaginal administration is not right for me? Because there are some patients where it's not going to be the right choice. So you're going to put those, um, they usually come in 200 milligram, um, microgram tablets. So you're typically going to put four of those tablets in your vagina and it's going to take some time for them to start working. Some people, it's an, within an hour, they start experiencing pretty, you know, heavy cramping and bleeding. Other people, it takes 
Um, it could take 24 hours, sometimes more. So you really want to make sure that when you're administering it, you're, you're doing it over, you know, if you work outside the, if you have to work, if, you know, you're, please don't plan to work while this is happening, because this is, you're going, this is what you're going to be doing that day. And potentially that next day is dealing with these symptoms and having, you know, having a miscarriage. It's not something, you know, that you're going to be popping onto a meeting on zoom while you have mesoprostol in your vagina. That's, you know, that's going to be difficult. So you're going to put these four tablets in your vagina and it's at some point, um, you will likely experience some symptoms. They're usually pretty strong contractions and it can be painful. For some people, it's, it feels like menstrual cramps and, you know, they take some, some Advil or Tylenol, whatever their, their physician has recommended they take and it improves. However, for others, it is much more severe. So I always prescribed stronger pain medications to my patients just in case they needed it. Some of them did, some of them didn't. But it is really nice to have those on hand in the event that you need them. So it is okay to advocate for yourself with your provider saying, I, can I get something stronger for pain in case I need it? I've heard that this can be really painful. So. Uh, you know, you're going to expect cramping, bleeding, somewhere on the, you're going to land somewhere on the pain scale between menstrual cramps and really severe cramping pain. And then you're going to experience bleeding. The bleeding is typically uh, pretty, pretty heavy for, but ideally just for a short period of time. It's about, you know, your heaviest day of your period but when you're having your period, it's not kind of, it's not happening as acutely. So the the tissue and the blood will start passing. We don't want you bleeding more than two pads an hour for over an hour. If that is happening, it's time to call your provider. They may provide you with specific instructions of what to do if you were to have heavy bleeding. If they don't provide you with those specific instructions, it is okay to ask them, you know, what, what bleed, how much bleeding is too much? What should I do if I experience too much bleeding and make sure you know what they want you to do. But, um, it can be heavy bleeding. Usually it's only for a few hours where you experience that, that heavier than a period bleeding. And the typical rule is more than two pads an hour for over an hour to, uh, to two hours that's the time that we start to get concerned. Follow your, your provider's instructions for that. The bleeding, even after you press the pregnancy tissue, often continues sometimes for up to six weeks. And you can expect that with after a dilation and curatage as well. So that's question number four. What can I expect from a DNC? A DNC is going to remove the vast majority of time. It's going to remove all of the pregnancy tissue, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to continue to bleed. After a miscarriage, people can bleed for up to six weeks. It's not typically very heavy, but it's just kind of a continuous spotting. And it's important to note that you can ovulate before your bleeding stops, okay? So you're going to ovulate again once your pregnancy hormone level gets down to uh, zero essentially, and then your cycle will start again. So 
when you're going to ovulate again is another really common question. And it's highly variable because it depends on how high your pregnancy hormone level got. And the higher pregnancy hormone level in your blood, the longer it takes to clear from your system and the more your ovulation is going to be delayed. So there is no one answer for how long will it take for me to ovulate. Some people are ovulating two weeks after their miscarriage. Some people it takes, you know, six weeks or longer to ovulate. So after from a DNC, let's talk about expectations from a DNC there's, it really depends on how it, your, your provider does their DNCs. They can be done in the office. They can be done just under local anesthesia. They can be done in the hospital under general anesthesia and you're completely asleep. There's really a very wide spectrum in how the procedure goes. And you can talk to your provider about those different options. Some providers do all of their DNCs in the hospital. Some of them do the majority in the office and only complicated ones in the hospital. Uh, it really is up to you. A lot of people do want some form of anesthesia other than just local anesthesia for this procedure can it, because it can be very uncomfortable. And that level of anesthesia can go all the way from just what we call conscious sedation, which is what we put people under when they have colonoscopies and that kind of stuff all the way up to full general anesthesia. So have a conversation with your provider about 